Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel, Jared Kimber here. Uh, back, back on my own. Got rid of Burrow, uh, finally. Uh, pushed him back to his, his own podcast. Uh, but thank you uh, to him for popping in for so many Wagon Wheels in a row. We've got some really good questions here. S- same rules as ever, er, always. If you want to ask a question, uh, the best way to do it is by joining up as a member on Patreon. I think it's our first class tier. Uh, we've got many tiers um you can have a look at there uh, there's plenty of different things there's a discord community and uh you get free uh ad free access to podcasts and uh all sorts of information back 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 room back stuff how to sausages make kind of information as well uh is available over on the patreon it just helps us make more stuff as well so thank you to everyone over there but if you are in the youtube chat today and you want to uh, definitely ask a question, you can line some up, but if you want it confirmed that I answer that question, the Super Chat, of course, is always the best way to go. But let us begin with the show with a question from Kennedy, who says, so the Duckworth-Lewis calculations, do you think they make sense? What metrics are they based on? Uh, do you think they could be improved um, if better metrics were uh, used? Felt like in the IPL final, that DLS calculation made it much easier for CSK to chase the original score set. Well, in the IPL final is a really good example of... I thought Gujarat were the favourites at the innings break. After the rain, I thought Chennai were probably marginally in front. Not, not massively. I, I, um, I don't think it changed, you know, a huge amount. But I probably had, you know, Gujarat as... Actually, maybe it did change a, a bit. I probably had Gujarat as about 60% chance of winning the game as it was originally. But uh, actually, now I've said that, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons why it, it actually helped Chennai. One was if... Um, Gujarat are a wicket-taking team. The ball being wet wasn't going to particularly help them with that. The other is once you're not bowling for 20 overs and it's only 15 overs, again, that's another advantage uh, for Chennai because they don't have to worry about being bowled out and Gujarat quite often take a lot of wickets. So there's a couple of advantages there that didn't actually have anything to do with Duckworth-Lewis. But the score, I thought, certainly um, changed a little bit, uh, the the overall. And, and And it comes back to, you talk about the metrics. The metrics are essentially resources, right? How many overs uh, do you have left and how many wickets have you lost? That's a bigger problem in T20 cricket than it is in one-day cricket because in T20 cricket, it's very rare that you're bowled out anyway and your resources are not quite as important as as the game is currently played anyway compared to one-day cricket. So there is a big difference between the two and this was obviously a system that was brought in for one-day cricket. 
I've never gone deep into DLS um, to have a look at or, uh, what works and what, um, what doesn't. But I've had friends who've done lots of work um, on this. And they, the, the most consistent thing I'm always told is that DLS is a terrible... If you use DLS on games where there is no rain, it's a very bad predictor for who's going to win the game. And what they would say is we now have so much more data and so much more information that we don't have to just go on a very two, you know, um, reductive methods of having a look at what is going to be happening in this particular game. And so they would say that what you really should do is come up with the best uh, match predictor algorithm that you can come up with. Uh, and you could test, you know, there's lots of people that have them out there. And you could actually start to use um, those methods in order to come, try and come up with uh, a system that would help a lot better. So I, I don't know if you, if at the end of the first innings, your team had a 45% chance of chasing, then when you, when the rain happens, you should still have a 45% chance of chasing whatever the rain uh, reduced total is. That's what a lot of people um, have told me. As I said, I haven't done as much in that. The one thing I would say is that DLS is a TV gimmick. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way to, you know, uh, the, the guys who invented it or anything, but it's there because essentially we're trying to get a game out of something that really shouldn't be a game. It, it isn't really designed to be fair. It's really designed to make sure that we can continue to play the game. And I think it's more fair than the original system, of course, the, the one that Richie Benno came up with. And they have tweaked, uh, well, it was Duckworth Lewis originally, now it's Duckworth Lewis Stern, isn't it? Uh, I think other people have been, is it Stern? I think it was Stern. Stern, yeah. Um, I think other people have been involved with it as well over the time. But yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more that can be done when it comes to it. But I'm not going to pretend to be an expert or anything else in that. But I do think that a, if you were to redo it now, if we, it's like, it's like one of the many things at cricket. I say this a lot. If we just redesign cricket from here, we probably wouldn't have DLS anymore. Neuron says, how good or bad is test cricket history of Bangladesh compared to the first 25 years of other test countries? Uh, when do teams usually get reasonably good at test cricket? So New Zealand win their first test series at 39-year mark. They had other things going on as well. There was a world war in the middle of all that. Uh, they lost some of their better players as well, uh, partly because, I mean, they had a, a string of bad luck, especially when it comes to their batting. Obviously, Stu Dempster moves to the UK and he doesn't play for them. Uh, Martin Donnelly, and I think there might have been someone else. Martin Donnelly was probably coming through to be their best batter since Dempster, and World War II happens. And then Bert Sutcliffe gets hit in the head uh, by Neil Adcock. It certainly affects, it affects his peaks. And it actually probably affects his consistency more than his peaks after that. Uh, but it, no one who saw him bat before and after seems to think he was the same player. I can only go on the contemporary reporting at that time. Uh, but they were a pretty poor team even after all that. Um, is it John Reed who never played in a winning test? I'm trying to think back now. Um, there, certainly there was a really good New Zealand player who never played in a winning test. Um, it was bad. They're the, they're the worst case scenario. South Africa is really, really interesting because South Africa are dreadful for a decade. They then play Australia and they draw a match against Australia, but Australia had basically come straight off the boat against England. They then, their next test series, 
Actually, maybe it wasn't the next test series, but certainly the next major test series they played was against England. Uh, they beat England at home, but they do that with the googlies. You know, so basically a delivery that four of their bowlers had perfected and England had had seen, but only in one bowler. And he wasn't as good at it as as the other guys were. Uh, I think that's probably fair to say as well. Certainly not as good as the, you know, for, Aubrey Faulkner uh, was uh, with that particular delivery. And so that meant that they had, you know, four bowlers bowling a method that kind of never existed before, that they couldn't really pick. Um, that and And South Africa had a good enough side around that to still get home as well. But that was a huge advantage. And it wasn't just that they had four leg spinners. All those leg spinners could bat. So they basically had four frontline bowlers, well, three frontline bowlers in their team who could all bat, um, uh, which is, you know, just meant that I think their number 11 in one of their matches was their wicketkeeper or their captain. And he was a really good bat as well. But they win that test. Uh, they have a little bit of success over the next couple of years. But I don't think South Africa won a test series in the 1920s. So if you think about it, it you know, they had a little flare-up for a little while, but then they really, really struggled. So over their first 40-year period, it really isn't until the 1930s that they start to become more the South Africa uh, that they would go on to become, you know, after World War II and and then since readmission after the apartheid ban. Uh, so there, there's, there's two. West Indies started better. They had George Headley and Constantine. I mean, what you know, that's really, really good players. I wouldn't say their team was always as deep. Um, it would, again, it's hard to tell exactly what was going to go on with the West Indies cricket because, again, the World War comes in. So them, New Zealand and India are all, there's a slight, I don't want to say cloud, but, a, you know, a slight, w- w- their development had to have been affected by the fact that Test cricket stops for such a long period of time and, uh, you know, is. They were all affected, those three countries all affected by World War II in different ways, of course. Um, but they weren't able to play uh, top-level cricket at that point. That, that's very, very fair. Uh, India is the other nation that starts at that period. They were very, very poor early on. They had a couple of good players, but as a team, very, very poor. India really become good into the what mid to late 1960s. They don't really become an excellent team until the 1980s. And I'm missing one. Pakistan is the more interesting one because Pakistan, which should have been like Bangladesh, of course, kind of have a bit of a head start uh, in that they had been involved in Test cricket before. They had, a, a, you know, they had players who were of that level. Um, some of which you probably could have played for India, but were waiting for Pakistan. Um, I think I want to say there was, a, you know, a couple of players who did play, but certainly a lot of players who played top level first class cricket in a decent structure at that time, and they sort of come in running. The other thing with Pakistan is that because they have Fazal Mahmood, you have like one of the world's best bowlers. And I think that if you go with, and we'll get to Sri Lanka in a moment, but if you come in with that, that's a huge advantage over everyone else. Uh, They still probably don't become the Pakistan that we know until the 80s. Uh, So India probably have, certainly have stronger players, 15 to so years before that but again you know both teams become really really strong in the 80s when they become good so if you think if from india's case it takes 50 years for them to become the india that not not today they're obviously even better today but you know the, a major test playing nation but by the 60s it's pretty clear that they're going to do it it takes a little bit longer for pakistan to do that by the 1950s i would say the west indies are absolutely thought of as you know a very very good test team the other thing i would just throw in there is this, Niran, this question is so difficult. 
for so many different reasons. Another one is that the West Indies played New Zealand, England, Australia, and India. Didn't play South Africa. South Africa didn't play the West Indies or India. Um, so there's all these missing gaps, even as, you know, um, South Africa didn't play Pakistan either, sorry. Uh, so there's all these missing gaps of, there's always something not there. And there are periods where teams, you know, can't afford to have test series and all these sorts of different things. There's also the fact that England don't always play a strong team. Australia doesn't play some of these teams a lot because they don't think they're very good. And England, you know, we talk about South Africa. When South Africa were originally losing to England, they were losing to like an England 7th eleven, right? Um, even the team that they beat in, the, in that series with the, all the wrongans, uh, it's an England, I want to say England A team. It's probably an England B team. You know, th- these aren't the strongest teams. So, uh, you know, and New Zealand used to get three-day tests against England. And there's the famous test match, of course, well, the famous test matches where England sends a fairly strong team to play the West Indies, who they thought were pretty good. And at the same time, they sent a much weaker team to play uh, New Zealand. So they're playing two tests at the same time in different parts of the world. Could not be further from each other, probably. Those two different places in the world. So it's a really, really hard thing. Then you've got um, Sri Lanka coming through. They have nearly, and I think that makes a huge difference because having that kind of a weapon, you go back to the oval test against England, that I, that takes me back to the Fuzzle Mahmood uh, uh, question, uh, the uh, point I was making before. If you have a ball of that quality in your test team, and you can also, if you want, you know, New Zealand basically starts to get good when Richard Hadley comes in. That's usually when you get very, very good as a test team, when you get a very good bowler. Zimbabwe is a really interesting one because I don't think anyone ever thought of them as an exceptional team, but they were very deep for a younger side. If you look at their, you know, batting options of four and five guys who could play bowling options, usually multiple people um, who had talent available uh, there. They had Andy Flower, who's obviously, you know, generational sort of player. There was a lot going on there, but I don't think people went into test matches against Zimbabwe thinking that they were a threat in that, in that same period that uh, Sri Lanka certainly were probably thought of as a little bit more of a threat. Everything goes wrong with Zimbabwean cricket after that era, of course. So if you compare Zimbabwe to Bangladesh, you'd have to say that Bangladesh has done much better there. So that kind of gets us through to Bangladesh. Bangladesh's biggest problem right at the moment is that their best bowler is probably Shakib Al-Hassan, very, very good frontline bowler, but not Fazal Mahmood or Richard Hadley or Murali. And I think that is a thing that can overcome some of your batting flaws. Uh, and so I, I think that they probably settle somewhere in the middle to the lower middle of that. They're certainly not one of the worst teams we've ever seen when they've come into test cricket, but they're also not at that sort of Pakistan level. Uh, or maybe Sri Lanka would be the other team that you would put, put up there, or the West Indies. Those those three teams probably certainly started a lot stronger from an early point where even when you were playing against them, you had to kind of think, uh, you know, you had to worry about them. Bangladesh is probably not in the South Africa, New Zealand um, uh, section of this. I think those are probably the two off the top of my head. They're probably more towards what we saw from India, um, uh, you know, in, in that sort in that sort of way where you can tell that they can play. It just they just haven't quite got the team in the way. And at home, um, you know, India were really good, and sometimes away they were really poor. And I think Bangladesh has probably followed that a little bit more as well. Uh, the the development just hasn't quite come through the, um, the way that you would want it to at the moment. But I'd have to go back and, and do the records um, uh, more thoroughly. But 
because of the because of the also weirdness of test cricket. It's a it's a brilliant question, but it's also almost impossible. I'll probably now because I've spent so long on this do a video on this. So thank you for uh, giving me extra work. Ian says, with James is scoring 10 off the last two balls to win the IPL final, um, is there a truth to the existence of a big game or big moment players? We've seen Stokes drag games out of the fire for England. Uh, are some players just brilliantly suited to these situations or do they just occur and we attach the label afterwards? I think good players in general are going to be good in high-pressure situations because their overall skills are just better, right? It's very rare that you would find a player, I'm trying to think of someone, um, who, who is a very average player, but then in the most important games is absolutely world-class and then goes back to being av very average again. Uh, you know, watching the NBA finals at the moment, Jimmy Butler is a really good example of a player who is a very average player through, uh, not average, a very good player through, you know, the majority of the season, certainly and a, you know, top 30, top 20 most talented player in the NBA. And then you get to the playoffs and he suddenly looks like, you know, top five, maybe even top two best players in the playoffs. But what happens in those bigger games is he, he's actually thrusting himself more into the action a little bit more. And his, uh, his role has slightly changed. And I think that is probably something that we've seen with someone like Ben Stokes. With Ravager Deja, with all due respect to what he did, because I think he, he did pretty well in that over, if you, have, um, if you have a bowler who's searching for the one delivery over and over again and they're missing, what Jadeja, because he's such a smart player, such a talented player, such an experienced player, all those things, Ian, he, he knows that eventually this bowler is probably going to miss his Yorker. And when he does, he's hoping that he's going to be in the right situation to do it. He also knows that you're going to forget the many times that him and Emma Stoney and Karen Pollard don't do that, or, or Ben Stokes don't do that, right? You know, it's, it's the old, I think there was a Michael Jordan ad from years ago where he talks about all the game missed, uh, all, the, all the shots he took where he missed the shot, right? Like we tend to focus on the fact that, oh, he always does this forgetting the fact that all the times that they don't do it. But the best players, I can't, I'm trying to think, there was a really good football example of this. I think it was, I can't remember if it was one of the Belgium or one of the German players, but at the last minute of a game, this player stepped up and everyone sort of said it was clutch. And someone on Twitter went, went into the detail of, if you went through, you know, th this player had, had headed this goal in to win this game for, for his team. You know, it was obviously a really important football game. But the, the thread was basically saying, if you look at the last five, uh, it, you know, last five or six occurrences, so pretty much the entire second half, when there'd been a corner or a cross or whatever it had been, you know, um, a penalty kick into the box, anything like that. This same player had always been in the right position at the right time. The The problem was that maybe there was a defender beside them on the other occasion. You know, uh, maybe the kick came in, didn't come in perfectly, or maybe they didn't time the header exactly as they wanted to. It wasn't that they were clutched. They were just regularly in the right position. And if you look at Jadeja, if you look at the shot that he hits for six, and the shot, I think it's two balls before, where he hits a single. Both occasions, uh, Mohit Sharma makes a slight mistake. One he overpitches, one he underpitches. Under Ravi Jadeja gets into a very similar position in both balls, right? And in that position, uh, the first one he mishits and it goes out to long one for a single, and the next one he hits perfectly and it goes for six. If he mishits both of those, you're probably not putting this comment in. 
right? And if he hits the earlier six in the over, we're all going, well, I mean, they're only chasing 13 and, you know, wet ball and they have wickets in hand. And, you know, we're probably not giving him as much credit. It Sometimes it just is the timing of when these things happen. But he was already putting himself in the best situation. Whereas if you look at Shivam Dubey, who's obviously, certainly against pace anyway, not the kind of hitter that Ravi Jadeja is, he gets a really bad ball. And he loses his shape a little bit and his hands just um, sort of twist in, uh, as he tries to play a shot. And, and I think the difference is that even when Jadeja mistimed his, he was more or less in the right position to play that shot. It just didn't hit the middle of the bat the first time and the second time it did. Whereas with Shivan Dubé, he was probably trying to overhit it. He probably suddenly saw this wide full toss. There's a reason why Ravi Jadeja is a... And, He's an absolute freakish hitter of, of pace bowling. He's got a strike rate of like two runs a ball, right? So there's nothing surprising about him being able to do this. But there's a reason why he's a more consistent striker of a ball than someone like Shivan Dubey is. And a lot of it is to do with technique and everything else. Patrick says, if you go back and rewatch one calendar year of cricket, what would it be? Wow. That's good. Um, I mean, you'd probably want to pick something a bit not obscure is the wrong way of putting it. Um, 2002 would be a fascinating one. Uh, 2002, sorry. N- uh, 1902 would be a fascinating one because it was that first test that uh, South Africa drew with Australia um, and it was also the really close Ashes series. I think that they were all in the same year. Um, I can't remember uh, the full dates, but I would assume um, that was the case. Um, you know, we don't... Uh, was it there was a bunch of matches came down to you know the last ball in that Ashes series? I'd like to see what you know what the quality was like and everything from that perspective. That's the one that I'm most interested in because I think in the history of cricket, it probably has one of the biggest impacts going ahead. Of the, the Ashes are quite interesting. Once England start to play their better teams, Australia doesn't dominate the way that they had. Um, uh, that they had before and so there is a period i think i'm trying so i'm trying to do this all off the top of my head patrick but i think there was a period where australia do really well in the ashes and then or in england australia matches and then england do really well for a little period and then australia sort of pull back and i think it's that period that sort of trumper clem hill um type of period lots of you know very good bowlers from australia as well where Everyone sorts of start, starts to realize that Australia is very good. And I wonder if that's that series um, is the one where you start to see it all happening. Um, yeah, the year, the calendar year bit is the one that gets me because I have to, you'd have to then factor in exactly which teams were playing who um, in that calendar year. And, and Australian summers and Indian summers and New Zealand summers, South African summers don't really quite allow for that thinking. <laughs> so, so it's hard for me to put everything in um, 100%. But there are, there are test series. I'd love to go back and watch the Pakistan-West Indies test series where um, Hanif and Sobis both make triple centuries. It may not be particularly entertaining cricket all the time, but I'd love to see what that was like. Um, I think that's a really, really interesting one. Obviously, a body line would be another fascinating series to go back and watch, especially with eyes from today. Um, I remember Alex Massey wrote a piece about how he thought body line was overrated. But I think even compared to today, the percentage of balls that were bowled short is probably, you know, 
drastically higher than um, than most test matches outside of when Neil Wagner is playing. Um, even the West Indies fast bowlers probably didn't bowl as consistently short as it was in body line. It's be really interesting to go back and have a look at that. Um, yeah, the, a lot of the the sort of early periods where we have you know the, the India using their quartet, I think would be fascinating because that's another change in cricket. Um, that comes from that. Um, yeah, so I, th- I don't know if I have particular years just because I don't think I necessarily think of cricket in, in years just because of the way the sport has gone. But there's certainly, those are some of the series or some of the periods that I think are really, really interesting uh, that would be great to go back and have a look at. Ben says, what would using a single brand of ball for all tests do to bowling? Should the away team be able to choose the brand of ball? So Ben, the reason that this isn't the case is because all the conditions are completely different and an Australian company really shouldn't be making balls that should be used in Bangladesh and, and India and all these other places. Um, the, the white ball is just most companies. You don't make a lot of money from making the white ball. So Kookaburra have sort of cornered the market and the ICC has allowed them to do that. Um, uh, you know, I, I wrote about that recently. Oh, sorry, did a video about that recently um, and wrote about it. I probably talked about it a lot recently. <laughs> um, but you can go and have a look at that. Um, so you don't really want... So the one brand is kind of a misnomer. I think if I was running cricket and it was run correctly, uh, which m- those two things may not go together, of course. Me running cricket and it being run correctly may not directly gel with each other. Um but if I was running cricket and I had my way, what I would do is I would buy SG, Duke, and Kookaburra. And I would bring them all together and I would use all the different skills and I would get the best of all three um, together, try and fix the, the white ball or make a new ball that is not white, more probably um, for that, you know, whether it's the, uh, uh, an improved pink ball so that we only need one ball in one day cricket. Uh, and so it doesn't go as soft in T20 cricket as well. Uh, and try and improve the pink ball as well so we can get it to 80 overs, all those sorts of things. And But I'd be using all the different knowledge, you know, so SG obviously know the Indian conditions and I, I'm not sure if that also means that that ball translates over particularly well to Pakistan or Bangladesh or like those are the sorts of things I would love to check to see if that's a better ball than using the Kookaburra in those situations or a Kookaburra style ball. What I really would like is you know, five different balls probably for different conditions all around the world. Um, and as you said, maybe then you could get to a point where, you know, the away team would be able to choose the brand of ball and this, or, or the type of ball and there's two options, you know, coming into this test match. You can use this ball and it's known for, you know, doing this thing or you can use this ball and it's known for doing this thing. That, that you know, whether I would go to that extreme or not, I don't know. But what I would want to do is use science and information as much as possible to make sure that the best ball is available for every individual market. And that is simply not the case at the moment. Aditya says, uh, during the last Uncovered Barrett, you talked about CSK bringing in Stokes as a possible leader post Donny's exit. But you said, given his workload and body, it seems unlikely he could be a long-term leader. Do you think CSK brought Rahane, uh, keeping an eye on his leadership credentials? Uh, we uh, until someone like young, younger, like a guy quad is ready to take over. Well, there's no doubt that Stokes was brought for that. They can still use him for that as long as they don't want him to bowl. I, I don't think he, well, I don't think he's a particularly good T20 bowler anyway. Um, and I certainly don't think he's going to be any better now that he's only got a handful of balls left in his life, um, depending on who you talk to, left. So I do think from that perspective, they have to make a decision. I don't think they brought Rahane in 
as leadership, just because if you look at the last couple of years, everything they've got out of Rahane has to be a bonus. If in now you might you might be right, they might I don't know what relook at that and say, well, okay, now why can't we use Rahane um, in this sort of role? But I don't, I wouldn't have thought Rahane would have been brought in with that in mind, just because who on earth thought Rahane was going to do any of this? Sena says on episode thirty four of Uncovered. Oh my god. Bringing, bringing receipts. Uh, you mentioned that you were taking training for being a curator. Uh, taking a lead from that, I have three questions. The water logging during the IPL final brought out um, different equipments for driving the pitch and ground like a hairdryer, iron, and sponges. What are the most unusual equipments that you have seen used for drying a pitch? I think the most unusual one is, was it a helicopter? I wanted to say. And did, was there another pitch where they burnt the surface? I feel like those two things have both happened. Um, obviously, the Brumbrella was uh, a fairly famous uh, invention. You'll have to Google that. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any kind of, I don't think it exists anymore. Um, uh, I think we all know that Sri Lanka d- does it best. And a lot of it is to do with the staff and everything else. But the amount of time that we cover the important bits, but we don't cover the whole ground. Uh, and I understand the drainage and how everything else works, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that we're not trying to cover the whole ground. Um, and so I think that <laughs> I could be wrong, um, but I don't believe that there's a better system out there than what the Sri Lankans do just on a very basic level of making sure that when the rain stops, there's a lot less um, problems with that and i understand there are certain grounds in the world where having as many staff as they have in sri lanka is just not feasible um and there'd be many other reasons why you can't you, you know uh, you wouldn't be able to do that and it's if you've ever been in a sri lankan game it takes an age for them to get those covers on anyway so if it's a deluge sometimes it doesn't matter and also um it takes an age for them to take them off so there are other issues but i think that's the best one um uh, so i was uh, when i was learning about curation and everything. I was in Melbourne uh, and a lot of the surfaces, I, and I only did a little bit of training on on that um, itself, but a lot of the surfaces that we were dealing with were really sandy. So you just had to keep the pitch covered and then the ground kind of just recovered on its own. Um, someone told me, and it might've been when I was doing that course or it might've been just through my years of cricket that uh, it's uh, Melbourne sporting fields have one of the highest sand ratios of, any in the world. Remember the first time I ever stood on the MCG, you put your hand down and you, uh, it's just sand underneath the grass. Um, and so it is a very, very different way of doing things that I think, uh, you know, m- many other places couldn't do that, different kinds of clay, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, the clay uh, uh, content plays a huge amount of this, as anyone will know if they've been to a place with, you know, um, like in my backyard in, in England, in London, that the clay content like the water almost sits on the surface. It just doesn't go anywhere for a long period of time. Whereas that's not my, you know, my memory of, you know, being in Australia or being in even other parts of the UK at times. Aditya says, I'd like your thoughts on my pitch for a remodel test championship. I've said this before, but I must get one of these a week. Like whether it be in wagon wheel, whether it be privately, whether it be people I chat to, it's incredible how often they do it. they Everyone knows that World Test Championship is bad. But anyway, I'll, I'll go. Um, around Robin League, played three separate legs using the nine World Test Championship teams. We'd have nine rounds of four matches. All matches in the first three rounds would be hosted in Australia. Next three in India, the last three in England. I already see some problems with this, but <laughs> last three legs, uh, uh, leaving room for other formats and marquee test series 
uh, the Ashes. This can also be used for women's teams and multiple divisions, including associates um, or franchises. Most teams play Red Bull. Look, the, the first problem is that you're probably not going to get big crowds uh, away from home. If it's a TV product, you've then got the time. Uh, let's say you're playing test matches in India and it's West Indies, New Zealand. Those are not particularly great time zones uh, for the West Indies fans or New Zealand fans. So you're then hoping that other fans go. And those time zone problems happen everywhere, right? Um, that's that's going to be a, a, a huge issue. But there's, as I said, there's a million ways of fixing the World Test Championship. It, the people who created it don't think it's a particularly good system, right? No one's sitting there going, oh, this is exactly what we wanted. They had a pre-existing FTP, and then within that FTP, they basically try and gerrymander a league onto it, right? They don't want the ICC to take control of it because the individual boards don't want to secede their bilateral powers. And because of that, we have a stupid system. You, you, you know, I, I, I see some flaws within your system, but it's probably still better than what they currently have. But it doesn't matter. That's, that's, it, there's no one, no one is, and there's so many, I, I cannot, I cannot even suggest how many people are out there who are coming up with their own World Test Championship um, plans and theories and, and, and uh, schedules and everything. There's no one schedule, even if you, it was absolutely right, Aditya, and you had the most perfect schedule that anyone had ever come up for, for World Test Championship, it wouldn't change anything at all, because that's not the problem here. The problem is, if you have a World Test Championship in the style that you're talking about, the ICC have to run it. And the individual boards do not want that. Kennedy says, oh, that's the DLS question again. Niran says, is Arjuna Ranatunga the only player to play the first test of a country and go on to win the World Cup? Do you ever see this happening again? I would assume he would be the only one. Yeah. Um... Uh, do I ever see that happening again? Yes. And I mean, we don't know what test cricket is going to be like in 10 or 20 years time. Um, so from that perspective, it's a really tough question to ask, answer. And then if you take it a step further than that, of course, we, we don't know how many teams will be in a position over the next 10 or 15 years to win World Cups. So at the, at the moment, Unless you were saying Afghanistan and Rashid Khan, there isn't really another. Oh, Rashid Khan played in the first test? I think he played in the first test, yeah. Um, unless you're saying Afghanistan and Rashid Khan, there isn't a other person out there that is obvious to be able to do that. So it's a real, you know, as you've asked the question, you would have to say no. Afghanistan probably won't win a World Cup, at least it doesn't look likely at the moment. But because he's out there, I suppose there is a possibility of that. Um, I don't even know if new teams as they're coming in, you know, will start continue to play test matches. You know, it's very unlikely that Andy Bell Burney will win. I'm trying to think who else is in that team. I don't think Harry Checker played in that first test. I think they had the old boys at that stage. Um, I can't remember if Mark Adair played in that test either. So, you know, an Islander less likely to win a World Cup probably at this point than Afghanistan. I think that's fair to say. Uh, so, you know, you've only got a handful of players who currently would even half qualify for this uh, award and I'm not expecting there to be a bunch of other test teams in the next couple of years I'm not even sure if other teams are wanting to play test cricket now in a way that they did you know in a previous era alright well, I'll take a quick break here and uh, after the break we will get to uh, the questions in the YouTube chat you're listening to Wagon Wheel I am <laughs> 
Jared Kimbo. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. E-counts with the Super Chat. Remember, if you want your question, absolutely guaranteed. Super Chat is the way to go. What are some of the lesser known existential concerns uh, cricket made it through? Uh, also, please increase your volume. I don't know when he said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, on that on that perspective, I'll put the mic closer. Um, lesser known existential concerns. Uh, I mean, I think South Africa is, I mean, it's not lesser known, but that's a huge thing, right? Like of that for from 1930 until 1969, is it? 1970. So 40 years, obviously World War II in the middle of that one as well. But for 40 years, they're not playing um, teams that aren't white or um, or even aren't majority white. Um, in the case, I suppose, of of the West Indies. Uh, or actually, maybe I'm trying to remember what the makeup of the West Indies teams were. But, uh, but certainly uh, in, in that case, you know, they weren't playing the West Indies. They weren't playing Pakistan. They weren't playing India. They then didn't play England when Basil Dolavira was picked. Uh, so... From that perspective, um, the, I don't think they ever played Australia when Australia had a non-white player because I think he played against England. Uh, and I think they might have played against England when England had non-white players. But again, basically didn't play against teams they didn't consider as white teams. Um, you know, that's an existential threat that didn't, just, didn't seem to bother anyone back in those days. I'm not sure why. But that is the case. Uh, what else do we have? Um, I think the biggest one was the overarm versus underarm bowling because you're talking about a 60, 70-year argument here. And that was a real argument for the soul of the game because the old guys who played as amateurs with big heavy bats and you know, were a little bit overweight and you know, struggled to move around a lot wanted the underarm bowling to continue so that they could continue to play and, you know, uh, it wasn't going to be an athletic dominated sport. So had that not changed, it would have been absolutely huge. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's one of the biggest existential crises that cricket ever had. And it's incredible to me that it took, even in that day and age, that it took so long to sort of win everyone over. Um, existential crisis, I suppose, you then have the fact that we now think about test cricket as the major form of the game, you know, in an international point of view. But I don't think it's really thought of as a major form out of the game, really pre-Bradman, pre-Bodyline, those sorts of incidents. I think test cricket was seen as fine, but county cricket was really where you were rated as a player. Um, that's an interesting thing as cricket becomes international. Uh, so yeah, I think those are the ones that come uh, off the top of my head. Thank you for your super chat. Jay says, why does Australia and England have a history of selected players when they're 28 to 30 instead of when they're 23 to 25 and giving them a longer run to adapt to international cricket? Well, I, I think that's a fairly modern thing. 
and it comes from professionalism, right? In the old days, when, when cricket was a different kind of sport, especially if you look at Australia, you didn't have as many players who were hanging on between the ages of 28 and 30 if they weren't seen as someone who could play international cricket. The Mike Hussey situation, Mike Hussey probably, as, as a, knowing a little bit about his family and his, and his uh, you know, the, the environment he was growing up in, if cricket wasn't professional when Mike Hussey came through, I, th- I think he would have just disappeared and got an office job. I don't think he would have stayed around to continue to play first-class cricket, um, especially in the years when he was struggling, like he was dropped by Western Australia. So professionalism in those two, and those are the first two cricket cultures that are professional in first-class cricket, right? And so in other areas, those sorts of same players quite often probably disappear. There's lots of stories of New Zealand players, for instance, and, and actually South African players even, where you hear stories of them coming through. They're, they're talked of as having lots of talent. They kind of plateau a little bit, don't quite make the international team, and they kind of fade away. And in English cricket, where there's it's a good it's a good earning to play you know professional cricket for a long time in England. You know, if you can have a 15, twelve to fifteen year you know professional career unless you have better job opportunities somewhere else and some players do and they do go off to to take those you're probably going to do it that and that means that most people if they are an above average talent are probably going to peak as uh professionals around the age 28 to 32 right and so you now have a bunch of players who are professionals and they're completely you know well worn in that form of the game um and they come in when you talk about the 23 to 25 if you pick someone who's 23 to 25 who's not ready, and we see this all the time, you're in some ways you're in some ways you're basically taking a bunch of gamble on talent. And for every 20, you know, 23 year old who goes on to be a great player, um, how many other 23 year olds uh, are not ready yet? Don't understand their game well enough. If you're picking a 28 year old, chances are they know what they do well and they know how to do it, and they might have to adjust to touring structure of international cricket, the uh, kinds of bowlers that they have to go up against consistently, your bowlers bowling game in, game out, and all those sorts of other things. But they're doing it from a position of strength. So I suppose my question is, should we be picking the best 11? Or should we be picking players based on the fact that one day they will be in the best 11? And I think the test cricket has actually picked over the history of the game too young. I think a lot of that does come back to that amateur side of things. Um, and I think now, because it is a lot more professional, you can pick someone like Sky, for instance. Uh, you know, all these sorts of players now have the ability to be picked when they are a little bit older. Daryl Mitchell, you know, all those sorts of guys. I-, I talked about Kyle Jameson. Kyle Jameson, ten years earlier, it wouldn't be playing for New Zealand now. You need that structure around those sorts of players, and not everyone is going to bloom at the same point. And I, th- I think we're as a society, forget cricket for a moment, but as a society, we are absolutely obsessed with youth and the next big thing. But if you are, if, if at any stage, Jay, if I was to give you a list and I was to say to you, I want you to pick the best 11 for the next test match, the majority of those players are probably going to be, you know, between the age of 27 and 33, right? And that's going to be the case for professional football, you know, for, you know, the best tennis players probably these days as well. Yeah, you know, all those 
all those sorts of male sports, women's sports is probably slightly earlier because of the way that women develop slightly differently. Although even the women's professionalism is moving things back. Um, you'll notice in some of those sports as well. But essentially, you know, that's because at that age, you know exactly what you're doing. You pick a young player, you're picking them based on the fact that probably not many people have seen much against them. They are probably highly skilled in one or two key things. We don't know that much about them, and it's a very sink or swim thing. Now, if you were picking them at 23, I, I mean, the, the best situation might have been what Australia did in the 90s by accident, I want to say, where players like Hayden, Martin, Langer, I'm trying to think there's someone else, Katich maybe slightly after that, were picked when they were really young, clearly had enough talent to play international cricket, but had to go off and round out their games. Now, they did it in the wrong way in some cases. In Damian Martin's case, they almost lost him forever. But now you'd probably be in a situation where it's like, well, Damian Martin's clearly an above average talent player. We saw that at the age of 21, right? What do we need to do to make sure that we can keep him around, um, you know, maybe pick him when the things are in his favor, take him on a couple of tours as a backup batter, um, and then occasionally, and then when he gets back into form and is fully rounded, we bring him back into the side. That's probably a better model than the the two that you've offered, which is only picking players when they're 28 and only picking players when they're 23. If you're looking for great players, though, and that's generally what teams are looking for, you're going to pick players when they're earlier, right? Um, you're looking for the player, you're looking for the next Joe Root. And I think that also comes back to what we we're talking about with society before. Ashwin says, does form matter more in cricket than any other sport? It feels like uh, a team that is very good on paper doesn't always have a good season in the IPL. Um, can CSK be this uh, good next year with the same? Well, if you look, Ashwin, they didn't have particularly good form. Mo and Ali wasn't in particularly good form. Jadeja had a down year with a bat. Uh, Raidu had a down year with a bat. Dispande, well, I wouldn't say he was in bad form, but, you know. Deepak Chahar had a, a bad first part of the season. Um, Tikshana had a bad first part of the season as well. It wasn't a, particularly a form-led thing. It was one of the reasons that I really thought they were one of the stronger teams, Chennai, was because of the fact that when you looked at the overall team, uh, they were... Um, what's the best way of putting this? They were um, winning without being completely informed and that is something i do look for no form matters in everything though <laughs> absolutely everything it matters in my writing it matters in whatever job you do uh it matters in how well you make your breakfast in the morning it, you know it matters to a painter it matters you know there are just times when things flow and it works perfectly and there are times when it doesn't um and so i think from that perspective there is you know we in in sport in general i think we focus on form a lot more whereas Actually, these things happen everywhere at all times when it comes to uh, sport, life, and everything else. Bob says, what are googlies? Googlies are wrongins. Um, what else do we call them? Boses. Uh, depending on, on the, the country that you're from, uh, it's it's a different name. Um, the Bosi was the original name. Probably should have stayed as Bosi. In fact, we, I was talking about this with Abhishek Mukherjee recently where we were talking about the fact that it's really quite interesting that Bosi, the name, and Marilia, the name, were two names where something was named after a cricketer and it disappeared. And the Mank had one, which actually the name comes way after, sticks with it in a way that the other two haven't. Um, but it basically means when you're bowling a leg spinner, instead of it coming out uh, there, you 
turn your hand further. Sorry, my arm's not particularly twisty these days. Although I, I did bowl a wrong into my kid the other day, so it's still working. Um, and instead of the ball rotating that way, it rotates that way. Actually, more rotates end over end, but that's for another day. Uh, but thank you to your questions. Remember, like, there's so many cricket concepts that I talk about here. And if you're newer to cricket or you're from a particular cricket culture and you don't understand, feel free to ask any of those. I'll have another quick break here and then after the break we will get back to um uh, a few more questions oh let me take that one off the page a few more questions in the chat room but you're listening to wagon wheel i am jared kimber and you can put a super chat in if you are desperate for me to answer beautiful welcome back wagon wheel jared kimber all these things uh we've got a couple of questions here EKG says, Sean had a very good start to test cricket and did very well from 1981 to 1990 with limited numbers of tests they got. Okay, so Sri Lanka win, win the 1985 series against India, which is really, really interesting. Uh, and I think definitely should be mentioned there. But they don't then win another series until 1992 at home. They then beat England in 1992 at home. Um, mm. And their first really, really interesting one is they beat Sri Lanka in New Zealand in 1994. What I would say there is that, and, and this is why the question, and when it comes to Bangladesh and put New Zealand in there. So, so the other teams that are, um, the other teams that are very, very interesting, uh, the fact that Canada almost became a test playing nation. And I'll explain a little bit why in a moment. I think New Zealand was partly made a test playing nation because uh, they didn't want to just bring in West Indies and India because there was racism involved. I mean, there's racism involved in the formation of the ICC and there's also uh, the Commonwealth bias and everything else involved in the format, uh, formation of the ICC. If you want to go back, I did a podcast on Double Century all about that issue. And I think New Ze people didn't think New Zealand were quite ready, which is why England sent a really good team to play in the West Indies and a less good team to play against New Zealand in, in those first test matches. And, and I think because of that, New Zealand probably get picked. I, I've said this before. I think Argentina probably were a better team at that point than New Zealand when you look at what Argentina had done against very strong MCC touring teams compared to what New Zealand had done. Not to say New Zealand shouldn't have got test playing status. I think Argentina should have got it. I think probably Ireland should have had it at that stage. I think America should have got it in uh, around 1900 as well. So I think there's a lot of flaws in the, in the overall system. But what I would say is that Sri Lanka uh, is certainly a team that, looking back on it, probably should have been involved in Test match cricket 10 to 15 years before they were. And Bangladesh, and, and I say this, uh, uh, Bangladesh probably got it slightly before they were ready to be able to, to start it. So there should be a difference between Sri Lanka's start and Bangladesh's start. Having said that, the Murali aspect is still huge because the Murali aspect turns what is a Zimbabwe-like team that, Zimb that Sri Lanka had into a proper test match playing team that, you know, go on to do in in incredible things. And I do think it's that one bowler, which is incredibly important. And we see that again and again in the history of cricket. Um, I've lost this question. I have all sorts of problems with the question. Sorry, everyone. Where is that one? There it goes. All right. Thank you, EKG, for your question. And we've got a couple more. Here we go. Um, Shramana says, we talk about 
things cricket could take from other sports like substitutions but it was something that other sports could learn from cricket well baseball should have learned about the shift 150 years earlier than they did because of cricket i saw recently a clip online of a baseball pitcher bowling slower balls but not the way they not sliders and everything else but going up over the plate and coming down and i think it was a batter um, well, an outfielder, I suppose, who was temping. But I did think that if everything you ever face is coming hard and flat at the plate, is going up and down a possible thing that that they could get from that perspective. Um, what else does cricket do well? I suppose cricket was, you know, one of the things that it has done well throughout the history is the the national side of things you know the the national sport side of things maybe that's moving away in, into the future but there are probably some sports out there that that would be a nice secondary earner right if you could if you could build up that side of things again be interesting to know if the Ryder cup had any sort of that sort of background was you know based on cricket i always thought that the, the davis cup and uh is it the fed cup in women i think that's what they called um they died off very very early on but teams Teams event like that, like it's actually it's quite a cool thing if you can manage to do it and make it successful from that point of view. Um, what else does cricket do well? I'm trying to think if there's anything particularly on. It's such a different sport to most other sports. I'm not sure if there's anything particularly great. I, I would say that the the fact that cricket has two bodies who look after the laws, one involved with the overall governance of the game and the other one that is just a law um, on itself is a really, really interesting thing because what it means is that you have groups with very divergent interests. You know, the ICC group is a very specific kind of thing. Um, And then the MCC group is laws driven so one's almost plain conditions driven and one's laws uh, done i don't think either of those groups run as well as they should i don't think they're as professional as they should be i don't think there's enough people in the room especially and it's going to sound stupid but especially people like lawyers who can explain the laws and the conditions back to the people as as they should uh but but from that perspective i do think that that's a really interesting thing of having these two groups sort of doing that at such a high level I don't, I don't want to say it's completely transparent, but we can't, you know, they, they release statements and, and information. I don't know if there are that many other sports out there that have that. I feel like golf is probably one, um, but I don't know if there's that many other sports that, that, that have that. And there sh- you should be constantly discussing your rules and your regulations because athletes change, right? And I do think that having those two groups is a very interesting one in that one is independent and one is more about running the global game. I can't think of anything else though off the top of my head. I'm sure there's other things. I, I want to say something about history, but I don't know if cricket, cr- cricket's history almost exists. I'm not sure if cricket does anything necessarily with it. Um, the, the branding of cricket, I would say, with, with, with the whites is a really, really interesting thing. There's a part of me that I never had to play in whites. And 
if you know about your history, not all teams did play in white. It's, it's, you know, one of those things that becomes a tradition, but wasn't always a tradition. But I do think there's an element of you watch Wimbledon and you go, well, that's Wimbledon. And I do think that if I was marketing a major event, I wonder if I would think about things in a slightly similar way of, we want your, when your eyes look at this, I don't know, athletics meet or cycling race or football tournament, whatever it may be. Wouldn't it be cool if like instantly just a highlight or a, you know, a social media tweet or whatever, you knew where it was based on the fact that of the uniforms. I wonder if that is something, it's like an accidental branding masterstroke of cricket. And Wimbledon certainly, I mean, Wimbledon know about this a lot more than Test Cricket do, where you just instantly know what it is that you're watching on the screen. And I wonder if that is, excuse me, something that could be used into the future by other sports um, more. It's a really, it's a really, really tough one. And I don't even know how it works, but, you know, I, I, I do think that there's something else there to that. Bob says, do you think a captain is necessary? Could a good team agree with things between each other and not need a captain? You have T20 teams now where a lot of the information is pre-explained. But I think that, it, it, I don't know how much cricket you've played, Bob, but if you are playing cricket, you know, in the space of a couple of balls, something could change quite dramatically. What you're, Think about it from a T20 position. Uh uh, you're in the 17th over of a T20 game and someone's hit a couple of sixes. You would need players to come in and those players would have to come in from deep back square, deep cover, short third, keeper, wherever. The actual time that you need for the team to come in and have that chat doesn't necessarily help these things. Also, you probably don't want, and, and I, I haven't played cricket, you probably want everyone to have a really strong thought on the tactics and the way that the game's going. You probably don't want everyone to be thinking that it's a part of their responsibility because you do want this person to be doing this job and this person to be doing this job. The one thing that we have seen, Bob, I would say in the last couple of years is more leadership groups within cricket. And within that, you then have the, um, you then have, I wouldn't say they're bowling captains. I think Jimmy Anderson is a very good example of someone who kind of, is in charge of the England bowlers quite a lot and has a lot to say with the bowls. And she'll probably become that sort of role as well. And that's in the old days, we would have just called them a senior bowler. But I think it's a little bit more structured now. But at the end of the day, someone has to make a decision. And you do only have so much so much time to make your decision on a cricket field. And if every single thing, if anyone's ever been, if you've ever been in a committee um, and you don't have someone who's in charge and everyone's trying to come up, it just takes a little bit longer. That doesn't mean that you don't get to the right answer. But if they all take longer, you're running out of time. I think that would cause other problems. Um, but T20 cricket is one that I think things would things would change quite dramatically. Last question. SBM says, how hard is it to coach every young keeper to keep like Dhoni to spin? So Dhoni's method is technically incorrect. And so in order to do it, you need to have the same sort of reflexes and um, conviction that he has. So it's a little bit like Shane Warne and his bowling, right? We tried to teach leg spinners to bowl like Shane Warne, which is, you know, walk in a few paces, come in and rip it. It didn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is Warne is a particular kind of athlete. And 
part of his thing was his incredible strength and his ability to still generate good pace on the ball. And he was a slow leg spinner, but considering his run-up, he wasn't a slow leg spinner, if that makes sense, compared to you know some other leg spinners. And, and considering the amount of revolutions he put on the ball as well. I think any other leg spinner probably has to come through the crease a little bit quicker. And it's the same with keeping. If you were to train someone to have their hands still and not have any give in them, I think the majority of wicket keepers probably get broken by that. And, you know, that they would get a lot more injuries because it, you should break more fingers doing it that way. And also, I think there'd be so many errors on the way up that they maybe wouldn't even be seen as wicket keepers. Donny's training as a wicket keeper is so bizarre the whole story about him standing in front of the motorbike and everything and he like behind behind the stumps or when he's not at the stumps so when he's back he's almost in some ways more of a stopper than a wicket keeper at times and he doesn't have the footwork that other wicket keepers of his level have which is quite often why he doesn't get to the wider balls um and then when he's at the stumps this this keeping the hand still method look maybe if you taught I don't know, if you were in one particular country and you had a wicketkeeping academy and you taught 200 wicketkeepers, maybe there is just someone else who could do that. But I do think back to the Shane Warne thing and there have been other players as well, Jeff Thompson, you know, those sorts of Don Bradman, sort of singular players where it's not actually a particularly easy thing to copy. And I wonder if Donies is that or if it's the opposite. And SBM, I'll be honest, I don't know. But it's a, it's a fascinating question. Anyway, that is the end of Wagon Wheel. So I just want to say thank you to everyone uh, for the questions. Uh, enjoyed them as always. I'll be back next week. Um, we've got uh, a bunch of videos on the main site that will be coming up about uh, the Ireland-England test match. Got something called the Basball Shuffle that I think some of you will enjoy as well. But plenty of content coming up. I've got I want to say seven test matches in eight and a half weeks. I don't think I'll be able to cover the women's ashes test, so I'll keep mine at seven. But I think it's actually eight test matches in England in the next eight and a half weeks. But it's a huge, huge um, schedule uh, for me. So there'll be so much content here. So uh, please subscribe and uh, click the box and everything else. And if you're a podcast listener um, and you're listening in that way, you know we've upped our podcast to four times a week. Uh, um, we're going to five, and eventually it will be six as well. Um, and so, again, make sure you subscribe and uh, check your feed regularly. I'm everywhere at all times. And I would like, I almost said that's the way I like it. I'm not sure that's the way I like it. That's just literally what it is. But thank you so much to everyone. And I'll see you again all very soon. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content.
Social Podcast Network.